Now, The Interpreter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics. This is The Interpreter Radio Show, sponsored by LDSAgents.com. The Interpreter Foundation exists to encourage study of the gospel and faithfulness to the church by making the latest scholarship available in its journal, publishing books, holding seminars, creating films, and by providing roundtable discussions of the scriptures. You can find us at interpreterfoundation.org, where you can find all of our materials, including these radio shows that are posted as podcasts, and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or through any of the other podcast apps on Android and Apple devices. If you like the show, tell your friends about us and write a review on iTunes or on your favorite site for podcast apps. I'm Steve Densley, and tonight I'm joined in the studio by co-host Mark Johnson. Aloha, Steve. Aloha. And from Matthew Bowen, professor from Brigham Young University, Hawaii. Aloha, Matt. Aloha. Well, in our last hour, I mentioned two things coming up for the Interpreter Foundation, and I didn't mention the location of one of these. Uh, so we're going to hold another Temple on Mount Zion conference. And uh, these are always, uh, well, should I say my favorite conference outside of general conference? How's that? That's legit. I okay. like that. Uh, favorite That's academic conference. Praise. Yeah, well, (laughs) you know, I just think that these topics are so fascinating. They're always great speakers. Uh, There's a great, um, always a great volume of the uh, conference proceedings that comes out of it. Uh, So this year's Temple of Mount Zion Conference will take place on November 4th and 5th. And the address is 2168 South 140 West in Orem, Utah. That is uh, going to be at a church house. That'll be, uh, I'm not sure exactly uh, where the conference, if it'll take place in the chapel or in uh, one of the other rooms. But uh, the first session will be streamed live and will not be an in-person session. Uh, the second session, November 5th at 8 a.m. in the morning on Saturday, will be in-person and live-streamed. Uh, it, it will include all sorts of really great scholars, such as uh, Wilford Griggs, Margaret Barker, um, uh, David Larson, Jeff Bradshaw, Stephen Ricks, uh, David Calabro, John Thompson, and Professor Matthew Bowen, the one and only so join us in person if you can, but if you can't, find the live stream. If you go to interpreterfoundation.org, you'll be able to see the uh, the schedule as well as abstracts of the, uh, the, the uh, presentations. So I encourage you to look at interpreterfoundation.org, look at our conferences tab. Let me go up the drop-down menu, and you'll find that. Uh, the other thing we wanted to announce... I did. I did announce the location on this one. I think <laughs> you did. The yeah, location. That was, that was a big draw. The location will be Turkey. This is the Interpreter Foundation's New Testament tour of Turkey, and it will take place next year, October 9th through the twenty second. Uh, there is a main tour from the 9th through the eighteenth, and then an add on tour from the eighteenth through the twenty second. And we're going to visit all the seven churches of the Book of Revelation. Uh, not, not a lot of people think about it, how the uh, book of Revelation is directed toward seven churches and, um, we'll go see them. They're all in Turkey. Uh, but not just that we'll go see, um, where Paul was born, Tarsus. We'll see one of the, 
um, one of the pillars of the church, Antioch. Uh, of course, we'll start all out. Uh, we'll start it all out in, in Istanbul, uh, which was Constantinople, mm-hmm. uh, one of the most important cities in the world for about a thousand years. Mm-hmm. Um, just just an amazing, amazing tour. Two-thirds of the New Testament was written to people in Turkey or by people in Turkey. Uh, we'll also go to the once-thought mythical city of Troy. Uh, they've discovered the ruins there, and... Um, Turns out it was a real place, and be cool. we'll go see those. We'll go see those ruins. Um, United States State Department again says it's safe to go visit Turkey. Uh, hasn't been for quite some time. My my parents were on a cruise on their way to Istanbul. Oh wow! It's about five years ago. Um, excited, you know, life dream to go see Istanbul, hmm. and as they're as they're approaching. Uh, the, the captain comes on the, the, the intercom and says, we've been denied entry. We're going to have to, uh, reroute. They went to Croatia instead and they had a great time there, yeah. but, uh, always wanted to go back. Um, this is your chance. If you've always wanted to go to Istanbul and Turkey, uh, to see Ephesus, uh, to see, um, you know where where all of these events took place. Um, you know where the book of uh, you know Colossians, Philemon, uh, Timothy, Peter, book of Revelation, um, Gospel of John could could have been written in Ephesus. Uh, that's what what a lot of people think. Um, so hopefully, uh, you, you know everybody within earshot can go now look at uh, bountifultravel dot com and uh, check out the tour. Look at. Uh, the itinerary and see if it's just not something you want to make your reservations for now. Yeah, that sounds amazing. I'd love to go see the the seven the seven cities where the seven churches were. If, if I'm not mistaken, I believe that um, it talks about all those uh, seven cities in a, a clockwise order in the Book of Revelation. Really, I believe that's the case. I have to take a look at that. That's that's interesting. Well, there's there. I've got a whole book that uh, I'm, I'm I've started reading that's uh, about the seven churches. Awesome. And uh, so I I've been really excited to to dig into this research and uh, even more excited to go visit. So uh, tonight we are going to be discussing the book of Daniel, and this was this was one when I you know when I was a kid. This is one of the coolest books in the whole Bible. Fantastic stories, right? Yeah. <laughs> this has this is just chock full of really cool stories. Um, now, maybe maybe because of that, some people say that it's just all mythology. Mm-hmm. That this is uh, you know this didn't happen. These these stories are too good to be true. There are some other reasons they say that, but I'll get to those in a minute. But um, let's let's put this in context first. So Daniel. Uh, he was a young man, a uh, boy probably, um, who uh, lived the same time as Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Obadiah, Zedekiah, and Lehi. Uh-huh. Uh, he was captured by the Babylonians as they're you know they're giving Judah a bad time, and in about six o five, they deport some of the. Um, I guess higher classes, you know, the best and the brightest. Yeah, take them, take them off to Babylon. Uh-huh. Now, this, of course, is before you know the eventual sacking of Jerusalem. Uh-huh. Uh, 
So, you know, Lehi and his family haven't left yet. But this this does um, provide the, the environment for um, Lehi's and, and Nephi's day where they're, they're living in a, a Jerusalem that has already been um, sieged and had had uh you know many of the 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 officials and religious officials political officials and stuff carried off into babylon already so yeah this is one of the first uh waves of deportations of successive deportations this is one of the 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 first significant ones well and then um you know of course babylon appoints zedekiah to be uh-huh. the king and he's you know kind of the puppet king in judah um, well, there's first there's uh, Jehoiakim, who is Zedekiah's nephew, um, who becomes king, and you know then there's this period of time, um, but at a point he he gets um, he gets replaced by his uncle Mataniah, who then takes the the throne name Zedekiah, and. Um, it's in his first regnal year that the the story of the Book of Mormon begins, and then um, you know, that will you know he's submissive to the Babylonians for a while until the pro-Egyptian faction within his court um, wins out and persuades him to rebel. And of course, the Book of Jeremiah, a lot of what that book is about is Jeremiah prophesying about what will happen if they don't continue to submit to the Babylonians. Well, and the Babylonians were all about assimilation. Um, you know, they, you know, unlike the uh, later Persians, they, uh, they weren't so interested in letting people do their own thing. Um, you know, and we'll see how that plays out a little bit in the book of Daniel, you know, trying to, you know, you say that, uh, you know, Zedekiah took a throne name. There's a lot of name changing that goes on in the book of Daniel. And um, a lot of that is, you know, we want to change your identity, you know, that you are becoming part of, you know, this, um, well, the Babylonian culture and Uh the Babylonian, you know, tradition. And so, you know, we'll change your names. Uh, change your this is religious a, practices. A phenomenon that you see a lot at BYU Hawaii, because we have so many students from um, so many different nations, and a lot of them because they don't want the, their name mispronounced repeatedly, um, they will adopt um, English or Western, you know, cognomena. To, to go by while while they're here, you, you see a lot of this, um, a lot of name um, alteration or taking of nicknames because of coming here. Yeah, and you know, and some of this is the, natural. You know, when you're moving into a different culture, um, you know, there are sometimes things that you do to you know try to fit in and and. Um, but you know some of this I mean, in the book of daniel it's it's imposed on them uh-huh. in, in, you know intentionally yep. that we want to we want to stamp out their history we want to stamp out their religion and the religious practices and so we see daniel and his friends pushing back um now this takes place at the same time as the etruscan culture is uh it's ascendancy in italy it's about the same time as the birth of buddha 
uh, about the time of the birth of Pythagoras. Um, and, you know, some people wonder, what's the purpose? What's, why was the book of Daniel written? Um, and, you know, some of the themes, uh, you know, could fit in different time periods. So, you know, the theme that, you know, God is supreme and uh-huh. that his kingdom will roll forth and fill the earth, um, being humble before God, submissive to God's will, um, having faith in God and being in the world but not of it. Uh-huh. Um, you know, so these are themes that fit very well in the context of the story where, you know, the uh, uh, where, where you have Jews being dragged off to Babylon and then, you know, asking themselves, now what? You know, how do we deal with this foreign um, culture, the foreign religion, foreign government that's imposed itself on us? Uh, modern scholars have observed that uh, this also could fit within the context of the um, uh, the the, er- the the Greek era in Israel, and you know that maybe there's messages to the Jews about um, you know how do they deal with their their Greek overlords. Um, and so some people, because maybe because of that, but also because of, uh, you know, we mentioned earlier, there's just a lot of really, you know, wild stories, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of miracles. Um, that's one of the reasons people will say, well, this must, you know, maybe it's just, you know, propaganda. Um, this is something, you know, written to maybe bolster the, the, the morale of the, the, the Jews living under the, uh, uh, the Greeks and, um, you know, trying to just, you know, boost their spirits. Um, there are, you know, there are other arguments that people have used. Um, let me just run through some of these. You know, there are a uh, number of different study Bibles that talk about this. I'm getting some of this from the uh, New International Version Archaeological Study Bible um, and uh, the Apologetic Study Bible. Um, and uh, they, they, they go through a lot of these different arguments back and forth. And I, I think it's interesting and worthwhile because people are sometimes surprised to find out that uh, it's fairly commonly accepted among modern scholars that the Dan- book of Daniel is uh, basically, um, uh, well, it's pseudonymous. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's not really written by Daniel and that it's, uh, well, not really what it purports to be. Um, and there are good reasons to think that it is exactly what it purports to be. Mm-hmm. So let me run through those, some of these arguments really quick. Um, so uh, Jesus ben Sirach, that wrote in about 180 B.C., cited numerous Old Testament heroes, but didn't mention Daniel. Another argument is, is that Belshazzar, Belshazzar is called the king of Babylon in Daniel 5, but at the time it was actually uh, Nabonidus, uh, Darius the Mede, who's mentioned in chapter 5 and 6, is otherwise unknown in ancient literature. Uh, The stories of Nebuchadnezzar's insanity and the fiery furnace read like pious legends and, you know, miracle stories. Um, Half of Daniel was written in Aramaic, which was a language spoken by the Jews during this um, intertestamental period when Uh the Greeks were in charge. Uh, Daniel 3 includes three Greek words, um, which suggests to some people that uh, maybe this was written after the Greek culture had, uh, you know, invaded the Near East. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the idea is that it was written as a as a way to persuade the struggling Jews that much later 
that, um, you know, God would, you know, God will save them from this. You know, there's, you know, God's kingdom is going to, uh, you know, roll forth. Right. Um, and so the troubles that they're experiencing under Antiochus uh, had been foreseen and, um, you know, that they're going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Now, in response to those kinds of arguments, um, you know, one one thing we can say in response is that Ben Sirach also omits mention of other famous Israelites, such as Ezra. Uh, the fact that he doesn't include Daniel doesn't necessarily mean Daniel didn't exist. No. Um, the book is, uh, it, it demonstrates familiarity with the uh, customs and culture of the 7th and 6th centuries. Um, you know, the fact that Darius the Mede's not mentioned outside the Bible, um, you know, this, this, this happens in ancient documents that uh, you will find names mentioned, you know, in one place and can't find them anywhere else. Uh-huh. And, and then, you know, eventually they show up. I mean, there's, there's, there's examples of this. Isn't, isn't Pilate an example where, you know, people wondered if Pilate actually mm. was a, 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 an actual historical figure and it wasn't, boy, I think maybe until the... Oh, 19th or 20th century, if I recall, that um, a stone was found. I think that that was at um, um, uh, uh, what is it? What is it called? It's by it's on the sea. Um, Capernaum. No, not Capernaum. Um, oh, help me out, Professor Bone. You know what I'm talking about? I, C- Caesarea, no, I Caesarea Maritima. Um, there is the uh-huh. Pilate Stone that was found in, in the uh, archaeological remains of uh, the, the city uh, that named Pilate. Uh, now, as I recall, that is the first time that they were able to verify archaeologically that Pilate actually existed. Um, so anyway, there, there are these kinds of examples. Well, you were just mentioning the, the city of Troy. Right. Yeah, there's you know. there's there's a good example. So we see so we read about Troy in ancient literature, but don't have any archaeological evidence that exists, right? Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so miracles. Um, you know, again, the fact that miracles oh. are attested to in the Bible doesn't mean that the Bible is myth. Um, you just have to you know believe that miracles are possible. And then you can, uh, you know, go from there. But if you don't believe in miracles, then, you know, I, I can't help you. Uh, what, what was that, Professor Bone? Oh, I was just going to say, uh, so this was found in 1961, I believe. What What was? The pilot stone? The, the pilot stone. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, you can you can go to the Israel Museum and see it now. Yeah, at, at Caesarea Maritima, like you said, and his name is very clearly inscribed on it. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Um, now, uh, Aramaic, the fact that we've got a whole lot of Aramaic going on. Uh, well, Aramaic was the language in Babylon, mm-hmm. and so it's not surprising we would find much of the book of Daniel written in Aramaic if it's written by Daniel, uh, you know, or, or written to people in Babylon because, you know, that was the uh, lingua franca of the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the nation there at that time. And, and there are reasons to think that it's, more of a classical Aramaic rather than the kind of Aramaic that was spoken by the commoners of, um, you know, ancient uh, Judea during the time of, uh, you know, the Greeks. Mm. Um, the fact that you've got Greek words appearing, um, you know, it's, it's said that uh, those are musical terms and that Greek poets and mu- musicians uh, would have been well-known 
by the time that uh, Daniel's purported to have been written. Mm -hmm. And so the musical vocabulary could have come into use quite early. Um, Yeah, those are sometimes what we call culture words. And they, I I mean, they're, and they're found all over the place, you know, in, uh, you know, from culture to culture. And, And so to have just three of them and be, have all three of them be, uh, musical refer to musical instruments doesn't really say much in terms of you know proving a, a, a Hellenistic period well origin for the book. What and what might be more telling is that we don't see more Greek in in the book because if exactly. this if this were written during the time you know that uh, Antiochus is is ruling the area, we might expect that the document would have been written in Greek mm-hmm. rather than partly Hebrew and partly Aramaic. Um, also, we've got the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, so we find uh, several fragments of the Book of Daniel in the Dead Sea Scrolls at an early date, second century BC. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which would which would mean that uh, if you know, Daniel had been written, uh, you know, 165 B.C., it would have have to have been accepted really quickly as authoritative uh-huh. scripture to end up among the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, you know, which seems pretty unlikely, um, you know, that uh, this, you know, kind of ultra-Orthodox group would have been, you know, writing down this, you know, book of scripture that had just barely been written. Right. Um, now, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the pagan kings in Daniel are sometimes portrayed in positive terms. So if you are trying to write a, you know, political screed against uh-huh. Antiochus, who, you know, this is a guy who set up an image of Zeus and sacrificed pigs at the Jerusalem temple. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, you know, I mean, you know, Cyrus, I mean, these guys are portrayed as, you know, not being totally evil, right? No. Um, you know, they're they're portrayed somewhat positively. And I mean, you know, they're, I mean, heck, you know, Nebuchadnezzar is the bad guy, of course, uh-huh. but he's not, he's not an Antiochus. No. Um, so it, it doesn't quite fit, you know, in terms of, you know, if we're trying to write this about the Greeks. Um, the Septuagint contains Daniel. Uh, you know, the Septuagint, you know, it's by, by all accounts, the Torah part, the, the, you know, the five books of Moses were written uh, into the Septuagint fairly early. Um, you know, maybe the, the later books were added to the Septuagint later. But mm-hmm. again, um, boy, it would have to have been uh, accepted very quickly mm-hmm. um, and then made its way 300 miles away to Alexandria to be translated true, into true. Greek to get into the Septuagint. I mean, it's there's just this string of events that would have had to have happened that just seem very unlikely. Um, the New Testament writers consider Daniel to be historical, including mm-hmm. Jesus. Um, Ezekiel mentions Daniel three times. Now, some people will say, well, Ezekiel, uh, he, he was referring to, you know, this uh, hero in an Ugaritic uh, story. But um, that would be kind of weird if Ezekiel is citing this, you know, kind of pagan hero as somebody that, you know, along with who else does he he, he list him along with? I think Job and Noah. I think. Yeah. So 
Job, Noah, and this hero from pagan literature <laughs> are, you know, these, you know, examples we should be looking toward. It seems so much easier to say that he was talking about, you know, the Daniel Wilfram we're familiar with. Yes. I don't know why they want to jump through so many well so many i think that i mean if you're if you're trying to ex again if you're trying to explain prophecy mm -hmm. uh it's easier to say well if, if if prophecy cannot happen if miracles do not happen then um we have to find an alternative explanation and so we can uh, postulate that, well, maybe this was written a long time afterward, and so that explains how it got some things right, and, um, and, and it's all made up, and that explains the miracles that appear. And, and then we can wash our hands and, and move on to the next controversy. We don't have to deal with prophecy and miracles. Right. There's no accountability there if, if prophets aren't real. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think that there are some very good reasons to think from an academic, from a scholarly standpoint, that Daniel was written early and not during the Greek period. And, um, and that's problematic for people who don't want to believe in prophecy. Didn't we have the same discussion about uh, Deutero Isaiah a few months ago? I'm yeah. Some yeah, it keeps, keeps coming up, this. doesn't it? It does. All right. Well, so uh, let's get to the story. Um, we've got this uh, teenager that's taken away to Babylon. And um, again, one of the first things that happens is they try to, you know, change their culture, their customs. Um, you know, let's let's bring these smart young whippersnappers up to be uh, scholars in our community. Um, let's train them, you know, uh, you know, in our language and, and customs, uh, train them to be, you know, basically like court magicians, you know, uh -huh. the, you know, they're going to be the wise men. Um, and, uh, so, well, again, uh, you know, you, you see this effort to stamp out the culture and the customs. They take the temple, um, articles, um, probably not all of them, but they take uh, many of them that, you know, kind of demonstrate, you know, our God's better than your God, you know. Right. Why would your God allow your your, your temple rel relics and utensils and tables and things to, and candlesticks to be to be hauled off if, right. if he was really powerful? Right. Yeah. And we changed the name. So we've got, um, uh, you know, Daniel um, and then... Um, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, you know, all of the uh, Babylonian names, um, which uh, some people think these are, these are maybe names referring to Babylonian gods. Uh, there's some, some debate about that, but um, uh, it sounds like that, that's plausible, that that's, that's what's going on here. Um, and then, um, you know, as these young men are being, you know, brought up, you kind of imagine sort of a boot camp or something here, you know, and, and they're bringing them up to be, you know, kind of some of the wise men of the court. And one of the things they're expected to do is, uh, you know, you'll eat from the king's table, you know, the, the, the kind of, the, you know, the food, uh, you know, food of the gods, you know, you're, you're gonna, you're gonna have the good stuff. And so there's a lot of debate about what this means. Um, you know, what, what was the food that we're referring to? Um, in, in the modern church, we sometimes want to take this as an example of, um, you know, kind of a proto word of wisdom. You know, uh -huh. this is really early. Um, it doesn't quite work out that way because, you know, he talks about eating meat and wine um, and that Daniel's refusing the king's meat and the, and the wine. And so we say, aha, you know, Daniel is, you know, he's anticipating section 89. Uh -huh. 
Uh, you know, but of course, then they go back to drinking wine. And yeah, you know. and that's the thing. I don't think it needs to be a prototypical word of wisdom. I don't think this, that's what the 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 episode's about. I think it's more of just um, Daniel and his, his you know compatriots there, not um, you know towing the line with everything that the king does. It's it's a, a subtle rejection of. You know the the king's authority, and you know holding on to the belief that you know their God, you know Yahweh, is is still God. One of the really amazing things about the Jews over the course of the you know last past few thousand years mm-hmm. is that they have maintained their identity mm-hmm. and, and maintained their um, distinct culture, and you know um, it, it, there, there's just so much to be said for how that has happened. You know, how is it that so many other cultures have come and gone and the Jews are still here? One of the things I think that really has helped them to maintain their identity is a commitment to, um, you know, a, 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 a code that they live by um, and, and a dietary code in particular that's, that's significant in this case. Um, it may be that the reason why they didn't want to eat from the uh, king's table is uh, that they couldn't be confident that the way the meat is prepared and uh-huh. the way the wine's prepared is Correct. done according to kosher rules mm-hmm. and laws. Um, so some people have also suggested that maybe uh, what's going on is that they couldn't be sure that this meat wasn't uh, sacrificed to idols, that the wine wasn't poured out, you know, in uh, you know the, the altars of, of foreign gods. And that um, so Kent Jackson, uh, he uh, he suggests that um, that eating this meat and wine uh, could be considered sort of a sacrament of, you know, paganism mm. uh, that, you know, eating and drinking. It could be considered, you know, sort of participating in some way in the rituals that were honoring these foreign gods um, in any event. I think what's what we can be confident in is that uh, Daniel and his friends are sort of asserting their independence of the culture, the customs and religion in some way that they are saying, you know, we're not going to participate in this. You know, you know, let us, you know, but let, 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 let us eat something else that's, you know, now what they're eating is something they could be more confident it's being prepared in the right, right way. Right. And, and it doesn't violate, you know, kosher laws. Um, and see if we don't, you know, turn out more healthy. Now, why would they be, you know, more healthy? Not necessarily because, um, you know, meat's bad for you or that, you know, the wine is going to be bad for them, although we believe it is these days. But that's uh-huh. what they were drinking, right? Right. That's, that's, that was very common even for the Jews. And that, that's a whole different lecture of wine in antiquity versus wine today. Right. Well, I think the larger point is, is that they were confident that they would be blessed by God mm-hmm. if they remained faithful uh, you know, to their customs and culture and, and religious practices. And so if they felt like, you know, we, we need to, whether it's because they're worried about the preparation of the food or they're worried that it's been sacrificed to idols and they don't want to participate in that kind of a ritual, uh, they, they, they want to, to, to establish that they're different and, and that the, they are standing apart from the Babylonians. And I think that that is a way in which this is a word of wisdom story. Um, you know, a lot of times with, with our modern word of wisdom, 
we think about it as a health code, and I think it is. You know, there are things about it that, you know, if you don't smoke and you don't drink alcohol, um, you're going to be better off. Right. Now, even the alcohol thing has been, you know, of late, there's been some scientific controversy over that. Is, you know, you drink a little bit of wine before you go to bed, you're going to be better off. Uh, so for a number of years, uh, within the last decade or two, people have said, you know, no, wine is good for you. It's good for you to drink a little bit of wine. You're going to have better heart health. Um, people are now bringing those conclusions into question. Right. And that, you know, that now there are studies that will say any alcohol at all for you is worse than if you just abstain entirely. Um, but then, you know, we can find studies saying that, you know, a little green tea is going to be good. Heck, you can find green tea in about every health drink now. Yeah. Um, coffee is another one where people are starting to say, ah, coffee's not bad for you. It might be good for you. Um, you know, to me, it was really striking when we went to England um, how, you know, if you're not drinking tea, that it really sets you apart. That you're, you're part of a different culture and bad, different yeah. customs. You know, if you're not drinking tea. Um, in America, it's coffee. Um, and you know, I mean, boy, you don't have to, I don't know. It's, it's, it seems like it's almost, almost, uh, uh, invading Zion here. I mean, I, you know, I work in downtown <laughs> Salt Lake and, uh, it's pretty common mm-hmm. that, you know, in the morning people will be drinking coffee. You know, you, I go to a meeting and, and it's, it's pretty common, but you go outside of Utah and it's ubiquitous. I mean, everybody's got their coffee. They can't get started the day without their coffee. And if you're not drinking coffee, you're kind of marked as being different and set apart as, you know. And so I wonder in some sense, does, does the word of wisdom not fulfill that same kind of function as maybe these kosher laws have in the past that have helped the Jewish people maintain their identity as being a covenant people, mm. you know, that they are dedicated to God and that he's different than the gods of these other countries and and that um, as they follow those customs, that it helps remind them. It's almost like wearing garments, you know. The garments remind us okay, of covenants yeah. that we've made, right? And so as we, uh, you know, I mean, heck, if God told us don't eat oranges, you know, I mean, it really, really doesn't matter what he's telling us not to eat. Don't eat shellfish. Right. Okay. Well, I mean, is it really a shellfish really going to be bad for you? Um, well, the Jews didn't do it. And, and I think that that's something that's helped them to, uh, you know, to, to re- maintain their identity as, you know, being God's people. I think Section 89 has the same function. In addition to having a health function, you know, being a health code, um, I think it also helps set us apart as a people. I think so. And one of the things that I think that we don't look at with the with the word of wisdom and and I'm trying to bring this back to to Daniel also, but um, the the Bible has a long tradition of wisdom literature and wisdom figures. Um, Daniel was was one of these figures. Um, These these are figures who can um, interpret dreams and, you know, you know, produce prophecy. And, you know, Daniel was, he was one of these, um, Joseph of Egypt, um, who Daniel is, you know, in the, in the narrative kind of modeled after a little bit, um, you know, was also a, a wisdom figure, you know, and if you want to look at, you know, our own word of wisdom, you know, as a, as a health code, um, it does have, you know, some of the, the same, um, emblems and kind of, you know, um, you know, foundational items as you know what you could look at in in wisdom literature if you're if you're keeping the word of wisdom 
you'll find, you know, it, it says you'll find, you know, wisdom and, and great treasures of knowledge. Yeah. Know, even, even hidden some treasures. The, some of the language is straight out of Proverbs, which is, you know, um, yeah, also wisdom, wisdom literature, literature uh -huh. par excellence. Yeah, great point. Um, in any event, they are blessed because of their commitment, and um, they they become kind of known as being among the wise men, uh -huh. right? Which turns out to almost um, end their lives in the next chapter, <laughs> you know, because they're among the wise men, and um, they got and, the spotlight now. And right everyone, now everyone they're on the about them. now 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 they're on the hook. They've got to they got to perform, mm -hmm. and so. Um, the king has a dream, and he's really troubled by this, and he wants someone to interpret it for him. And so he's telling the wise men, he says, you guys need to tell me not only what the, how the dream should be interpreted, but you need to tell me what the dream was. Okay, now, this is, this is pretty unusual. Kind of gutsy. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, you know, there, there were, it was, it was not uncommon for there to be uh, this practice of dream interpretation. Mm -hmm. um, really common in Egypt, they had these dream books that you could go to, mm -hmm. to, uh, to read. And we, we've got those today. Um, you know, you, you dream about flying, or what does that mean? And, you know, you can go to your dream book and look it up. And, you know, I dreamed that I was late to my test, and when I got there, you know, I, I'm naked, and I'm not, you know. So what does that mean? Can't find the door. or I always yeah. have the same dream of, like, losing my car or finding a an extra room in my house or, you know, just these these weird so if you want to know what those mean, you can go to Amazon.com and you can buy a dream book. Okay. Exactly. Well, they had these in, in the uh, ancient world, and um, they had them in Mesopotamia. Um, now, uh, if, the, if the king wants to feel like he's getting the straight skivvy by somebody who really knows what they're talking about, then he's going to say, well, he does in this case, he says... I don't just want you to tell me the interpretation. You know, I know you go to those books and, you know, mm -hmm. you just look it up. I want you to tell me what I dreamed. Okay. And so it's, it's a little bit confusing because the language in verse five, it says the phrase, it says, he, it, you know, it's gone from me. Okay. Um, that probably should be interpreted something more along the lines of it's certain with me. Yeah. Um, it's secure with me. It's, I'm, I'm keeping it to myself. It's sure. Yeah. That he, he knows it. Mm -hmm. uh, I know it. But I want you to tell me what it is, because if you can't tell me what it is, then I don't have any confidence that you can interpret it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and so these wise men are saying, there's no way, there's nobody can do that. <laughs> they, in, in, uh, let's see, in, in verse 11, uh, he says, they say, it's a rare thing that the king requires. There is none other than, uh, other that, that can show it before the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. So the wise men are saying only God or the gods can do what you are asking, um, which, uh, which sets this up pretty well, I think. You know, it's, um, you know, it sets the stage pretty well for Daniel because you know, they're establishing here that what the king's asking is something that can only be done through divine intervention. So... Um, uh, Daniel, I mean, you know, they, they come to kill Daniel and his friends, you know, mm -hmm. the king says, okay, you know, off with your heads. Yep. You guys can't, uh, can't, can't do this. So they come to kill Daniel. They say, whoa, 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 what's going on? <laughs> and, you know, they explain to him, he said, look, can you, can you let us give, give us a little bit of time? We'll pray about it. 
and um, which uh, it's, it's such a great example, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so much so much going on here, but um, there are some messages about prayer. I think that we can, you know, we could probably spend some time talking about, but uh, but we won't. We'll we'll move on. Um, so uh, again. Uh, Fantastic dream. Daniel's able to interpret it. He's he's able to tell him what he dreamed. Dreams about this, uh, you know, this enormous um, statue, and that uh, you know we've got a head of gold, and um, we've got the uh, oh, what was it? Was it a chest of, of bronze? I'm getting it all mixed up now. Um, we've got iron, and we've got the um, you know, we've got the iron that's mixed with clay for feet. Um, so they're the different parts of this sculpture, this, you know, big, uh, you know, idol, basically. Um, and Daniel says that this is a, a um, vision of the future, that these different parts of the, um, you know, of this giant represent the different kingdoms. You know, your kingdom is the greatest, you're, you're the head, and you're gold, uh-huh. and these kingdoms that come after you aren't quite as good as you, but they, you know, there'll be kingdoms after you, and then, um, you know, then there will be this rock cut without hands that will smash the whole thing and fill the earth, and that that's the kingdom of God. Um, you know, and so this is, uh, again, modern revelation um, tells us that, you know, this is a prophecy of the latter days and that the kingdom that will fill the earth is the kingdom of God. Um, We find this referred to in the Doctrine and Covenants. uh, The keys of the kingdom of God are committed unto man on the earth, and from thence shall the gospel roll forth unto the ends of the earth as the stone which is cut out of the mountain without hand shall roll forth until it has filled the earth. Um, you know, Joseph Smith said, I calculate to be one of the instruments of setting up the kingdom of Daniel by the word of the Lord. And I intend to lay a foundation that will revolutionize the whole world. Um, so the king then recognizes Jehovah as one of the great gods in verse 47. Um, so, uh, again, great story. Um, before we move on then to chapter three, um, Professor Bowen and Mark, do you have anything to add to chapters one and two? One of the things that I like about this image of the, the stone cut without hands is Joseph Smith would frequently refer to himself as a, uh, a rough stone rolling. And, you know, we, we get this image of him just kind of working his way along, you know, with all of the, the bumps and, you know, sharp points and stuff getting just knocked off of him as he rolls. And, you know, until he's, you know, through all of his trials, he, you know, gets, uh, you know, becomes perfected. Yeah. And I, I really kind of sometimes see the, the church in the, the same way. I think it, you know, started out really small. And as it rolls and progresses, you know, we, we find um, the, you know, the prophet and the apostles, you know, they, they give us correction. We, we, you know, have, find um you know our our understanding of points of doctrine or refined or or changed you know just you know where our understanding is you know increased line upon line and I, I think the church often does go through you know uh that that through that growth and through the rolling you know um a little more smooth and you know we do go through some bumps but uh we're better off for it 
Yeah, well, and fill the world. And, you know, and later, uh, Ezra Taft Benson used the same metaphor to, uh, to describe the Book of Mormon, and mm. the Book of Mormon would fill the wor- world. Um, uh, Professor Bowen, anything to add to that, or would you like to move on to Chapter 3? I, I think it's very consonant with the Isaiah prophecy about the expanding tent or tabernacle, you know, that um, keep expanding until it's filled the whole earth. Um, so I, I like that, you know, stones are sometimes associated with temple building, um, like the imagery that Isaiah uses of the of the um, lengthening cords and the expanding tent or tabernacle, Isaiah 54. Nice. Very good. Well, in the next chapter, then, there's a, a 90-foot image that's set up, you know, to give, give people an idea of what this, maybe how tall it would be. The bell tower on BYU campus is about 115 feet tall. So, uh, you know, 25 feet, you know, shorter than that is this, this huge image. And Professor Bowen, why don't you tell us about the uh, the 90-foot image? Well, the, you know, Herodotus records that there was some kind of golden image in in Babylon, you know, one of the the objections that has been thrown up um, about this is that it's unrealistic. But you know, we do have Herodotus saying something about that. You know, um, and, and there's no way to test the um, dimensions that are given here, but um, it is something mentioned in another ancient source. Um, the, so, you know, we start off, it's, it's set up in the plain of Dura, um, and we, then you have, um, a long list of, um, you got this beginning in, in verse 2. Then Nebuchadnezzar then sent to gather the princes, the governors, and the captains, and the judges, the treasurers, and the counselors, and the sheriffs, and it goes on and on and on. And that's that list is made out that way to, to sort of emphasize the um, grandness of the project and, and how, you know, just how what a big part of public life this thing's supposed to be a part of. And so then that sets the stage for, um, you know, the, the trap that is set for um, the, the three companions. Interesting. So the... Um, it's interesting. One of the small little textual things that I think is interesting here is um, the the phrase, you know, that's used. Um, we usually associate it with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they say, um, but if not, and that's been the focus of several important um talks that have been given recently in general conference. Um, but that, that 
it's interesting. One scholar's pointed out that 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 Aramaic construction is first used by um, Nebuchadnezzar. Um, you know, but if you will not worship, you shall be cast that same hour into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. Who is God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Um, and then that's answered by the companions in verse 18 or, um, or verse 17 and 18. If, it's so, if it be so, God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. So it's really, you know, he set up what he has declared as as consequences and then then that grammatical structure that they're using is specifically set up um as a a direct challenge to what he's what he's saying so they're just throwing it back in his face correct yeah and um i think we ought to talk about real briefly the um when they're cast into the into the fiery furnace um and nebuchadnezzar sees the um who's in there the one like unto the like unto the son of god that phrase is um in aramaic is bar elahin which means a you know, that that one way of understanding that is a divine being. Um, you could trans that, translate that literally, literally as a son of God or the son of God. In any case, it's you know most commentators recognize that the 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 figure is mysterious. Um, Latter Day Saint interpretation tends to revolve around that being. Um, uh, Jesus Christ, because of the the phraseology, the, the Son of God, but um, it might have a more general reference to a divine being, an angel, uh, you know, a, a a Son of God, a divine being. Interesting. One of the things that's always struck me about some of these Daniel stories too is the um, connections with uh, Melchizedek that we get, um, especially from the, the Joseph Smith translation, where um, the prophet added a, a handful of verb or verses onto the end of uh, Genesis 14. Um, and one of the things he talked about was how, um, you know, how mighty Melchizedek was. And, you know, part of that was because Melchizedek um, stopped the mouths of lions. Stopped the violence of fire. And quenched the violence yeah. of fire. Exactly. Um, it, it all seems to be drawing on, you know, all these, these ancient, you know, these ancient, uh, you know, deeds and, almost tropes you could call them you know these these qualifiers that that you know these these wise men and these these powerful men and prophets you know these are the things they do so you know it's it's no surprise seeing daniel and his his compatriots here doing the the same kind of things you know stopping the the mouths of lions and you know quenching the violence of fire you know that's just uh that's part and uh, parcel for you know being uh being a man of god in, in biblical literature and you know, in the Book of Mormon, it's emphasized that those were some of the things that, um, you know, those three disciples that carried uh -huh. um, 
could do. That, that, that point is directly made. And I think it's interesting, too, because we want to think of that as, or, you know, it's, it, I guess, not uncommon for, you know, people to look at that as like a, a criticism of, you know, like plagiarism. Oh, Joseph Smith just stole these ideas from somewhere. But if you're, you know, an ancient, you know, Hebrew author, then, you know, of course you're going to be, you know, tailoring your your figures and your your characters and your story to older older things that's how that's how you make it authentic that's how you make sure that your writings are you know just as, as scripture scriptural as you know what's uh what's come before you gotta you gotta fit the mold so in, in fact the you know the book of daniel wants us to see daniel as as you noted earlier in the in the the broadcast he wants us to see daniel as fitting you know or, uh, as a worthy uh, individual in the tradition of Joseph in Egypt. Mm -hmm. And that gives Daniel validity and, you know, authority. Well, uh, Mark, we've got about one more minute. Is there something you want to tell us about the writing on the wall or <laughs> Daniel in the lion's den? Um, one of the things, I had a whole thing about the, the writing on the wall, but that would take too long. One of the things I've noticed about the lion's den, though, is how um, you can look at that almost as just a, a type or a shadow um, of Israel and the exile, how, you know, Daniel's thrown into this, this lion's den, God preserves him. And then he's, you know, retrieved out of the, the den. Um, you know, it's, it's easy to see, um, that as a, a type of Israel being, you know, cast into exile and then, and then restored after, after, you know, um, a, a trial and, and righteousness. Hmm. Yeah. Great point. Um, Professor Bowen, uh, we'll have the last word before our commercials come on. I just, think that you know one of the things i was thinking about earlier in our discussion is you know when you think about um we we're talking about names and and cultures and maintaining cultural distinctives um I, I think it's important to remember that you know one of the overriding themes here is that they were there were attempts being made by the babylonian authorities to strip away their identity and even exercise authority on them by, you know, putting new names on them. And, um, but living there, you know, the, I, I think that the, the story of Dan, Daniel and the three companions is even more relevant now in, in a lot of ways in terms of trying to continue to live our, our faith and live our beliefs in, um, a world that is increasingly antithetical to those. Oh, I like it. I like it a lot. All right. And Thanks for joining us this evening on the Interpreter Radio Show. And join us next time on K Talk Radio.